Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love your Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might." And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." I think every one of us who is a parent or a grandparent or who has worked with children can uh, appreciate that scene and can relate to it. No matter how beautiful your child is, no matter how much that little grandchild resembles a literal angel from heaven, the fact is he or she is a savage at heart. Now, on the one hand, it's Sunday, right? And Sunday, I look back at this sermon title, Taming the Savage Heart. And it, now that it's Sunday, I realize that that really does sound a whole lot like a cheesy romance novel, doesn't it? <laughs> okay? So titling sermons, so you know, is not my strong point. Oftentimes, Paxson provides the title for my sermon. You know, that's just not my strong point. But, you know, I did choose those provocative words on purpose. Uh, I want to deliberately dispel the common belief that our children are born this sweet, innocent, blank slate that somehow gets polluted by society or bad parents. No, from the outset, they are savages. Okay? They're savages. They're savage sinners. Society, parents, uh, the environment, all these things can mitigate or it can exacerbate the fact that they are savage sinners. And so every one of us also are born as savage sinners. They're just like us. Our forefather Adam, he sins in the Garden of Eden, and from his sin, sin enters into the family line, and all of us sin and are savagely sinful because we are born sinners. The scriptures tell us that none of us are righteous, none of us are good. All of us live our lives in rebellion to God, running from God, not seeking after God, wanting to rule and reign ourselves and live our lives the way we want to do so. And we would continue that until the day of our death if God does not sovereignly and miraculously intervene in our lives. So this morning, some of us, we're parents, we're grandparents who are given the divine responsibility 
of raising children who are born with savage, sinful hearts. Others of us, we're involved in partnering with parents. You're a teacher, you're an educator, you're a volunteer in, in church ministries here in our church that are all geared towards raising the next generation. And if that is you, you're in those categories of people, you are on the front lines of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the hearts of our children. But even if you aren't in those categories, you don't have much to do with children at all, Every one of us interacts with people every day whose hearts are savage towards God. Some people, the savagery is over-the-top hostility and anger and enmity towards God. Others, it comes across as benevolent disregard or disdain. And then for others, unfortunately, the savagery and the sin of the heart mask itself with spirituality and religious involvement. So regardless if you're a parent or a grandparent in children's ministry, for all of us, this passage this morning has important things to say. Now, when this passage is considered, normally it is in a parenting home situation, and the, the seminar speaker or the teacher or the pastor will jump straight to verses 6 to 9 which is a critical passage, and we're going to get to that, but I think it's a mistake to start there. Because verses 1 to 5, in those verses, God provides for us three very important prerequisites that are to characterize the life and the hearts of those who are going to address the sinfulness in the heart of a child or and a neighbor or friend. And so we're going to start there. We're going to start with those prerequisites, and then we will move at the latter part of the message to the overall primary strategy God gives us to address the savage, sinful hearts of our children. The first prerequisite, it's in the very first few verses, we are to receive the Word of God as absolute truth. We're to receive the Word of God as absolute truth. Now already, this morning, you've been presented with aspects of God's truth that run contrary to modern thought. Modern thought rejects the idea that we are born savage sinners, that our heart is a savage place filled with sin. This is contrary to modern culture. Parents, if you're going to raise your children in a godly way and have a godly home in a way that pleases God, understand that you're going to have to swim upstream against a literal flood of false ideas, false philosophies, and unbiblical truth. That's where we are as a culture today. But listen, this is nothing new. The Israelites, for 400 years, they have been living in Egypt. They are indoctrinated in pagan religion and pagan philosophy. And so Moses starts out in this passage reminding them of something extremely important. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. He's pointing back to what we looked at last week, Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments. And he comes to them and he says, Israelites, what I have brought to you, it's not ten cosmic suggestions. It's not ten really good ideas to have a better life. These are the commands of our Creator. These are the words of God to us. 
And if you obey them, life will go well with you. God will dwell with you. God will bless you, and you will be God's people. He says in verse 3, hear this, Israel, be careful to them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. Moses says, what I'm bringing to you are the words of God. They have his authority to them. And church, that message of Moses is echoed throughout the scriptures and applies to the entirety of scripture. God tells us in the book of 2 Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Do you believe that, church? Do you actually receive the Scriptures as God's Word? Do you believe this in your heart, or do you give the right answer, but functionally, other things intrude and become your source of authority? Do you believe and receive the Scriptures as God's Word, that it has an absolute claim over your approach to parenting, over your ideas about marriage, and how we are to live our life in general and even in specific details. Does the Bible have that absolute authority over your life? If not, what is your standard? Everyone has to have a standard. And so the question is, is the standard going to come from man-made ideas Things that are, are open to the vagaries and the shifting of time and philosophy within human culture, or is it going to come from with outside of ourselves, outside of humanity, to be received by us as absolute truth? Which is your standard? Before we can deal with the sinfulness of our hearts, before we can deal with the sinfulness of the hearts of those that we love, first, we must receive the Word of God is absolute truth. Second prerequisite, we also have to know who God is. We have to know who God is. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Israelites were leaving a polytheistic culture. Poly means many, theistic God. They were leaving Egypt where there were a multitude of greater and lesser gods. They were going to Canaan and the Canaanites and all the different tribes and nations of people that lived in Canaan. They too were polytheistic. They had gods for the land, for the sunshine, for the wind, for the rain, for you name it, they had a god. And then they had a, a primary deity called Baal. And these children of Israel, these Israelites, for 400 years, they had been indoctrinated with this polytheistic system of religion and so they were clearly confused about God. You see it at Mount Sinai when they very quickly build a golden calf and begin to worship and revel and orgy around this golden calf. They are greatly confused. Same thing happens today, right? 
We have 300 and some odd million people in our country, and everybody seems to have an opinion about God, and their idea of God is shaped by what they think and who they think God is. Folks, we do not have the right to make God as we think He is. We receive the revelation of who God is. He tells us who He is right here. Verse 4. This is known as the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel. Shema, O Israel. And after that exhortation to listen up, this modernity, hey, listen up, Israelites, God says. He gives them four distinct words, four unique words. Yahweh, our God, one. Yahweh, our God, one. Why is that significant? Because in that statement, God is revealing himself, his personhood. He's telling us his name, who he is, and he's revealing his nature to us. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. That's what he's saying. Say it with me. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. In other words, there, there are no multiple deities, a number of different gods in the universe who we are to worship and bow down to. There is one God, one God who is unique, and he is singular, not one of many to be considered. We know from the revelation of Scripture, this one God is three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God who even took on flesh and walked among us, Jesus Christ. This truth, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is one. This provides, if you think about it, this provides the basis for those first four vertical commandments that we really dug into last week, right? Now we understand why God would say, you shall have no other gods besides me. You will not go to creation. You're not to go to creation and take something out of creation and elevate it to a status to where you worship it because all of those gods that you worship, they're nothing more than a hollow sham. Yahweh alone is God. Think about that. The Israelites, think about what it means to the Israelites. They, they go into the land of Canaan. They invade the country. And they come to these people who have all of their different gods, and almost all of them also worship this god by the name of Baal, the supreme god. And they walk into their country, and they say, we are here. This is our promised land. And by the way, our God told us to come here, and our God is actually the only God. Your gods are false. They don't really even exist. You're wasting your time. How do you think that played in Canaan, 1400 BC? You know how it played. The Old Testament tells you, let there be blood. There was antagonistic pushback. There is always, church, antagonistic pushback to absolute theological statements. Absolute theological statements tick people off. They don't like it. 
And when we come onto the scene and we say, there is one God, Yahweh, and he took on flesh, his name is Jesus, and he's the one who we are to worship, and he alone, for there are no other gods. Ooh. That doesn't fly too well in a, in a multicultural environment, in a pluralistic environment like ourselves. This doesn't play well. And in fact, it tries, in modern thought, you see it, it gets explained away, right? Oh, well, now come on. Are you saying that the other six billion people in the world who don't follow Jesus are wrong? That their gods are false? It, isn't it much more likely that there is, there, yeah, okay, there's one God in the universe, but he's revealed himself differently to different people groups? Isn't it much more likely that, you know, you Christians, you're worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping Yahweh, Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh, but, you know, for the Muslim, he's worshiping Allah. And the Buddhist is worshiping Buddha. And the Hindu, they're worshiping Brahma, Shiva. But isn't it much more likely that really what's going on here is that we are all worshiping the same God. And even though our religions are different, we all end up in the same place, living happily ever after with God. Isn't that more likely? You see, this is the narrative of our culture today. We want to rationalize away this very hard statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Multiple gods, or multiple manifest, yeah, we're all this. No, one God, one God. This means that he is uniquely and eternally, perfectly consistent perfectly holy, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always consistent within himself, and he's always consistent with us. Thus, he cannot sin. He cannot lie to us. And, church, this means that he cannot contradict himself. And so God in the flesh, Jesus says to us when he walks the earth and he's talking his, to his disciples, he says to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If all other systems are equally true, then we have a God who is not one within himself in the most basic understanding of the concept. Because Yahweh and Allah and Buddha and Shiva, they all contradict each other. And so either these systems of religion are not true and we have one God, Yahweh, or we have a God who is not one within the most basic understanding of himself. Instead, we have a schizophrenic deity with the worst case of multiple personality disorder imaginable. That's what we have. This is hard to take. Some of you are not believers this morning, and you're being confronted with the most basic 
truth of Christianity. Your creator says, what will you believe? Will you receive what I reveal about myself? Or will you create your own God that you're comfortable with? Church, this truth is foundational to our lives. We have to know what is. Our faith depends on this truth. Our lives are to be built around it, to be built upon it. Everything we do is to flow out of this theological truth and is to be influenced by it. You want to see your savage heart, your sinful heart, the savage sinful hearts of your children, of your loved ones healed and restored? It starts with receiving the Scriptures as absolute truth. And when you read the Scriptures, you begin to learn who God is. And when God reveals Himself and you begin to learn who God is, it naturally follows that you begin to understand what God wants and requires of us. And this is the third prerequisite. This great commandment to love God with everything you are and to love him with everything that you have. Verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus, he said, when he was uh, referring back to this, this statement, this verse, they asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, this is the greatest commandment in the Bible. He expresses it this way. He says, you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. He helps amplify and clarify it. The central message of Deuteronomy is to love the Lord with the entirety of our being. From the core of our being, a deep love of God, a deep commitment to God, a deep loyalty to God is to emanate and shape and direct our lives. Our lives are to be lives of obedience to God's command, but this obedience doesn't come from dreadful fear, but out of grateful love for who He is. So behind our receiving the Scriptures as absolute truth and knowing who God is, is this most fundamental purpose that all of us end up having and enjoying a personal love relationship with our Creator that we experience in covenant community. That's why God is revealing Himself and communicating that to us through His Word so that we would have that kind of relationship with Him. Now, the words in this command are important. They can be confusing. My mom, from the time I can remember, uh, into my teenage years, so it was kind of uncomfortable during those years, into my adult years, and, and really it's one of the last things that I think she coherently said to me before her mind was taken over by dementia. My life was marked by my mom putting her arms around me, hugging me and kissing me, and whispering in my ear these words. Son, you are my heart. I can think of that all the time. Wish I had a dollar for every time she said it to me. I was raised with that. 
I now, you know, before my son went back to college uh, a few weeks ago, I pulled him into my arms and I made sure I squeezed the breath out of him real tight. And I said, son, you are my heart. You know what she's saying, right? You know what I was saying to my son? That you have all of my affection. You are so important to me that you have all of my love and affection. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it great to be raised? I'm so thankful to be raised with a mom like that. But that is not what the Hebrew means. (laughs) When it says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, it is not what my mom meant, that, son, you're the seed of my affections. No, that's a Western concept. That's a Greek-Roman concept. The heart is the seat of our affections. In the, in the Hebrew word world, it had a different idea altogether. When the Hebrews translated the Old Testament into the Greek, what we call the Septuagint, they tried to find Greek words that would correspond to their Hebrew words. And the Greek word that they chose for heart is the word dianoia, which means mind. Mind. And so when the scriptures say, love the Lord with all of your heart, what it's getting at is that I want you to love me with the seat of your thinking, with the source of all of your decision making, the source of your disposition, the seat of your will. I want you to love me like this. Because in the Hebrew way of thinking, all of life proceeded from the heart. Paul was writing as a Hebrew in Romans 12 when he says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? Through the renewing of your mind. But what he was saying was the heart, because all of life issues from the heart. You think in the Hebrew mindset, you think with your heart. Your worldview is developed from your heart. Your theological framework and your life plans are formed from the heart. So God is saying to us to love me like this. I want all of your thoughts. I want all of your intentions. I want all of your ambitions. I want all of your decisions to be focused and have me in mind. I need to be in the middle of all of your plans and your will and your goals in life. Love me with all your heart. Love me with your soul. In Psalm 103, verse 1, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. We have parallelism going on here. This is common in Hebrew poetry. The first line, bless the Lord, O my soul. The second line restates it a different way. So what does it mean to bless the Lord with all my soul? It's with all that is within me. Here's where it gets confusing. Essentially, the, the word for soul, if my mom had been a Hebrew, she'd have put her arms around me and she said, would say, son, you are my soul. Because the soul was the seat of affection. Dr. Sandy Wilson was the pastor of Second Pres. Uh, in Memphis for many years, and he taught a men's Bible study, a huge men's Bible study for many years. And, you know, he, when he walked through these words and explained these phrases to those men, he gave a great illustration that I think helps us understand it. He said, fellows, imagine 
Men, you go home and you, you, know, you wash the dishes, you help with the children, you wash your wife's car, you bring her roses, you cook dinner, you know, and, and, and you do all of these great things for your wife. Is that ever enough? And the answer is no. Why? Because your wife, more than anything else, wants to know that she resides in the center of your affections. If you do all of those things and she does not know that she is the center of your affections, that she has your soul, from a Hebrew perspective, that she has your heart, from a Greek Western perspective, all those good things don't matter because she wants to know that you love her and are dedicated to her alone. That's what Jesus, that's what God is getting at here. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your thinking, your disposition, your will, with all of your soul, the love and the affection of your entire being, with all your might and strength. You are not going to like this one. <laughs> the, the Talmud, the rabbis, and Jesus too clearly understood this. Might and strength is literally referring, and this is how it's literally said in, in the explanations. You will love the Lord your God with all of your money and substance. Told you you wouldn't like it. <laughs> all that other stuff, oh, that's beautiful. Oh, you've gone to meddling, buddy. Right? Love the Lord with all your money and resources. Now maybe we can understand why Jesus preached more about money than he did faith and prayer and evangelism combined. Why? As Tim Keller puts it, greed is the most subtle of sins. It afflicts most of us, and we don't realize it. We had Lord's Supper a few minutes ago, we started by confessing sin. I wonder how many of us confessed pride, anger, irritability, what, whatever. All these. I wonder how many of us confessed greed. Just look at your own life. In the last month, how many times did you confess the sin of greed? How many times? We don't think of it. We're not afflicted with it. Yet it is a predominant theme in all of Scripture. Because greed and our love of money and these things that money brings us actually become the best example of a self-made God that we worship instead of Jehovah. That's why it's talked about so much. It wasn't to keep the electricity on in the synagogue. It was because this area is such a powerful example of having other gods besides Yahweh. Parents, your children, they see this. They understand that money is power. Money is strength. Money is ability. We either buy for ourselves and we get the life that we want, or we buy for God and we get the life for ourselves that God wants. 
One of those two is taking place. Christian, which one is taking place in your life? Are you buying for yourself in order to get the life that you want? Or are you buying for God and letting him give you the life that he wants for you? How do we address the savagery and the sin and the idolatry of our children's hearts if we will not, church, address the sin and the idolatry of our own hearts, especially in this most common temptation that our children so easily see? You can't. Now, the good news here is that loving God with all of your heart all of your soul and all of your strength, everything that we are and everything that we have, loving him like this, it can be cultivated. It can become more and more a characteristic of our lives. When we begin to follow Christ, you, we will not love God perfectly. In fact, let me just say it like this. We will never love God like this, this side of glory. But we're trusting in somebody who has loved God like this who stood in our place and obeyed God perfectly out of love, even to the cross itself. And we stand with him. And so this type of love, it can grow in our lives and become more of a reality. It starts with us realizing who God is in his holiness and his grandeur and his perfection and his love for us, that perfect love that he demonstrated to us even while we were still sinners and that Christ died for us. The love that Ben mentioned in the Lord's Supper where the brother gives up his life for us. And so when we realize this, we come before him and we begin to bow before this perfect God as imperfect children. And as imperfect sinful children. We come before this perfect God and we begin to commune with him. What a privilege. And we begin to pray and talk to him. And we begin to confess our sins and our struggles and we call out for his grace and we come to know him more and we begin to see him work in our lives and to change us and to shape us. And what begins to happen is this love begins to grow. This type of interaction with God, it changes us from the inside out. There'll be ups and downs. You'll have times of it seems like incredible growth in your love, and then you'll have times where it just seems to be blasé and stale. But when we come before God like this, there will be an inevitable growth of love in our lives. It never gets perfect before heaven. But these three prerequisites can more and more come to characterize our lives as we depend upon the Holy Spirit to change us. And when these prerequisites are in place, the primary strategy that God gives us for addressing the savagery of our children's hearts, it is effective and powerful. If they are not in place, when you go to employ this strategy, this overarching strategy, it comes across as hypocritical. That's why these prerequisites are so important. Because children can sniff out hypocrisy faster than a dog can sniff out a bone. And there it is. So what is the primary strategy? The primary strategy God gives us to address 
the savagery and the sinfulness of our child's heart is to daily bring the gospel of God into our homes and into our community. When you look at this passage and you summarize it, this is what we're to do. This is the strategy. Now, there's all kinds of tactics that fall under this, like discipline and how to discipline and how to talk to your children. And the Bible is filled with this instruction, but the overarching strategy that rules all of these various tactics is this right here, to bring the gospel of God into the home and into the community. He says in verse 6, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. In other words, parents, grandparents, we will ensure that our children, our grandchildren, the children that we have involvement with, they, they will be systematically and intentionally indoctrinated with the truth of God's word. That our children will grow up knowing the word of God. Parents, we are responsible for this in our children's lives. Not the church. We are. The church comes alongside a parent and helps. When my parents, the way this looked is that they told me and taught me the Bible st stories and the stories of the Bible and the truth of the gospel from my earliest memories. Every night, my mom or my dad read to me and talked to me about God's Word, and then they would read either Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> but God was there. They brought me to church every time the doors were open. And the only reason why I was never in church, and parents, for the love of God, hear this. This is so important. I look back, this was such a gift that my parents gave me, even though I whined and complained about it at the time. But of course I'm going to whine and complain. I was a child with a savage, sinful heart. The parents are the grown-ups who know better. And unless I was throwing up blood, I was in church. And we didn't miss church for recreation and everything else that comes down the pipe. And even if we were on vacation, we were in God's house worshiping Him. What a heritage that gave me. Even in my rebellion, I knew how important it was to worship God. They were intentional. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, you will not leave it to just systematic teaching and presentation of the truth of God's Word. Now, organically, throughout the normal rhythms of life, you bring before your children the gospel and you engage them and you help them learn it and think about it and apply it. So in other words, driving in the car, rather than always having the radio on, blasting, turn it off, parents, and have conversations with your children. At the dinner table, conversations. The electronic devices are put away, and you begin to talk. My mom mostly did this with me. My dad did, but my mom mostly did this with me. And it was awesome. And it was just a conversation. Son, how was your day? Tell me about how was math class. It was all those little pesky questions that moms ask. But you know what happens in those little pesky questions that mom asks? 
Sooner or later, the mouth reveals what's in the heart when we answer those questions and have conversations because the Bible says, out of the mouth proceeds the heart. And when things would come up, it could be my poor self-image, it could be my anger, it could be whatever manifestation of sin or emotional you know, dysfunction that was there, my mom would address it. Around the dinner table, we would talk about what's going on in our nation and politics and different things. And always, whether it was around the dinner table or it was in the car, my parents would come back to me with a simple question. Son, what does the Bible say about that? What do you think God would want in that situation? Can you think of something in the scriptures that relate to this? And there we are, off to the races. Parents, organically having these conversations throughout the week with your children plants the gospel deep into their hearts. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That first portion is talking about everything in your private life, everything in your home itself is characterized by allegiance to the gospel. It is shaped by what God says, not by what the culture says. But it doesn't stop in the home. When it talks about the gates, this is the gates of our community, not the gates of your fence and your walls or whatever the case may be. The gate of the community and the town gates. In other words, it refers to us not only bringing the truth of God's word into our home and for our children and bringing the gospel to them so that they can be restored and made whole in Jesus. It means that as a family, we bring the gospel into our community. You know, this, uh, yesterday I was uh, over at Jupiter Elementary doing some work and I walk in and the first thing I see, you know, is a young married couple trimming trees together. That made my day right there. And then I walk around the corner and there's, and what did I see? I saw moms and dads and their children. I mean, we had like six, 700 bags of mulch, you know, and most of it. And here's these children with their parents and they're, they are bringing the love of Christ into the community. What a phenomenal example. These parents are setting for their children of what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Church, God loves our families. He's a covenantal God. Our children are spe special to Him. He gives us this strategy so that we can plant within them the truth of the gospel. Now, I have to tell you, this primary strategy does not mean that your children will automatically love and trust in Jesus Christ. But it does mean that their hearts and their lives will be affected and they will be better for it and then here's the great hope, because God does love his covenantal families. Even if you employ, and your children don't come to Christ, the norm is they come to Christ before the age of 18, but even when they do not, there's this beautiful promise that when we employ this way of bringing up our children, the word does not return void. 
The promise is that the scripture and the seeds that are planted in that heart, they bear fruit. And oftentimes they bear that salvation fruit many, many years after they leave your home. But you've planted within them what the Holy Spirit requires to bring them to faith. I know this for fact. I've seen it in the lives of the four men, probably that I love more than any men in the world outside of my boys. My dad came to Christ around the age of 40, years, years after his mom, who was a devoted Christian, passed away. My two uncles, Uncle Gerald, Uncle Junior, they came to Christ in their 60s and early 70s, decades after their godly mother, who I heard pray for them so many times, had died and gone to glory. My brother died 12 days ago. And all of his life, he ran from God. The last conversation I'd had with him on spiritual matters, one of many, but the last one probably took place 20 years ago, where we really got down into the deep of it. And he said, I just can't, Jerry. I've sinned too much. He'd been a pothead since a teenager, smoked it every day, drank, caroused. And he knew, you can't live like that when you're a Christian. And God, I've done so much of it, he can't forgive me. So back in July, he was, he was diagnosed with cancer. Came as a shock to all of us. Um, he went through treatment, and uh, it didn't work. He had throat cancer, and so in November we get the word that it's fatal. The tumors had, had grown around the carotid arteries, and you know, I grew up with him, very close. In December, I'm meeting with several of the elders. We're praying, and those elders they challenged me. You got to go, man. You got to go. One more time, you got to go. So I went up in December and had a long conversation with my brother. You know, I didn't open the Bible once. I didn't read from the book of John, the book of Romans. The conversation was like this. Craig, you remember that story where Jesus... Craig, you remember the thief on the cross? You remember that story where Jesus talks about people who are hired in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, and they all get the same wage because God is gracious like that? You remember, Craig, you remember David, his adultery, his murder? Did you ever murder anybody, Craig? And every time I'd ask, do you remember? Craig would go, yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember. Why did he remember? Because his mom and dad had planted those seeds in his heart. And for the first time, he finally said and admitted, maybe I haven't sinned too much to be forgiven. And I prayed with my brother in the hospital in December to receive Christ. Parents, this strategy, it is powerful. Powerful. Lord Jesus, help us as parents to disciple our children, to help them see 
how worthy you are of love. Help us to live it with our hearts, with our souls, with all of our strength and the substance that you give us. Help us to model for them that there is nothing more important in life than loving you, worshiping you, following you, and serving you. Lord, give us the grace we need. Their souls are in the balance. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.